Hi, you're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work in unusual, site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and in this episode I'm talking to Thomas Conway. Conway works as a theatre director, dramaturg and theatre instructor. Directing credits include Whoop It Up for Liberty, Drentrification, The Winter's Tale, The King of Friday's Men, Once Upon a Barstool, Closer, In the Blood, Beowulf and What Where. As a dramaturg, he has worked with Druid, Pan Pan, Fabulous Beast and Barabbas, amongst others. He is the editor of the Oberon Anthology of Contemporary Irish Theatre, and was the literary manager with Druid between 2005 and 2015, and has been a dramaturg on specific projects subsequently, including Waiting for Gatto and Richard III. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Owen. Um, Thomas, do you remember the first time you saw a piece of theatre? Mm. Uh, I wasn't exposed to theatre growing up, uh, and so I did gravitate towards making a going to theatre um, at a time I started actually going to other things as well, um, notably experimental cinema. So I do remember joining McHannigan's film club in the Trisco uh, and that introduced me to that venue and started going yeah. to the theatre there as well um, in Cork in the early 90s. And it was an exciting time to start mm. attending theatre. A lot of theatre was touring and Cork was a very important venue for not, not only Irish companies, but also UK companies. So the RSC were coming regularly, the National were coming regularly. And, uh, and so the, you know, the Abbey were coming to Cork regularly as well. And at the time, Kirkadirka was setting out and the other outfits setting out in Cork as well. And the, uh, the Student Society was doing very exciting work. John Crowley was creating work down there as well. Yeah. So um, in the midst of that kind of milieu or melee, Got a taste for theatre for sure. I was going to ask how, like, how did you become involved yourself? Um, I got involved with the drum sock in in UCC, and I really do owe it to um, a woman, Nicola Swanton, for stopping me and asking me to audition. Oh, really? Really out of the blue. Yeah. Um, she was a producer for for a show. Um, it was observe the sons of Ulster marching towards the song and uh, she saw me in, a, in an English lecture and just just asked me to to, lect, to to audition for it and not having thought that I could remotely consider that as an, an option just turned up decided to do my best and, and got cast the rest and is it history. was a very exciting cast um five of that cast are still acting and oh, really? working wow. in theater so Kitty. And Killian Murphy among them, uh, Des Bishop was in the cast, Cahan Murray. Um, uh, and it's been, it was quite a bond we, we, we made as well at the time. So mm. it was a bit of a baptism of fire. That's great. 
Um, I was going to ask who you were collaborating with when you were kind of starting your career. So obviously they were the actors in that. Would you have like, uh, how did you kind of go from there into dramaturgy? Um, so uh, one of the things I suppose that's consistent is that I, I tend to work with people who, who come to Ireland from abroad. And one of the first times I did that was with an actor called uh, Felix Novus. And he translated, he did his own translation of a play called Aram of the Pond, Beowulf. And he had planned to do a kind of a reading of it with other poets. And I said to him, I could see him do it as a one person show. And it kind of, he was kind of knocked back by that. Suddenly we found ourselves in rehearsal um, on his translation. And uh, we did it all. It was a bit of a marathon. I had an idea that um, unless we did it all, he'd never agreed to doing cuts. So um, we did it all, and he experienced the sheer labor of that. And at that point, he agreed to do cuts. And I suppose in my working out and edit with him for the production proper, I got to feel what it was like to be a dramaturg for the first time. Yeah. And I did drive that process of, of doing the edits. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Yeah. So, so by practice, so we did, really. We did another three shows together. Um, absolutely, yeah. It was it, it was by practice. He did an, another show. He wrote a self pen show, and again, the relationship was so close. So, for instance, he was doing draft after draft after draft. We were scheduled to do a an opening performance, and nineteen days later, we we're still working rehearsing, but we were meeting every day on the draft. Right. And suddenly, we just segued very naturally into rehearsing, mm. and uh, and we're, we're on our feet. Um, without really noticing that we, we were doing that. And he said at the end of that process, that, but coming up to opening night, that I shouldn't be down as a dramaturg. No, I didn't know what he meant. And I kind of backed away from that. Mm. Um, but it was a dramaturgical, you know, kind of new play development yeah. process we were on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't think I, I became a dramaturg in a program until working with, um, with Michael Keegan Dolan in his revised version of the bowl. Right. It's the first time I actually was, was designated a, a, a dramaturg. That was you, you'd kind of been doing it before you were designated. I, yeah. Very definitely, yeah. I mean, I yeah. would always work closely with the writer on the new play um, through the drafting process of, mm. you know, offering a, a, advice in it, yeah. Um, what was the first play that you worked on um, that was not performed in, say, a traditional theatre space? I mean, we used to do Beowulf everywhere and anywhere. Um, we went to Edinburgh with it, and, and we played in a, in a, in a, in a must have been a kind of Presbyterian church. Right. Um, I still remember where it was. It was tiny. Um, but it played in shops. It played in churches. It played in, um, it played in the O'Reilly, of all things. It actually played in the City Art Centre, God bless it. <laughs> for its Dublin run it was a beautiful venue to yeah. perform in it's so so missed I mean nothing came of it it's one of the greatest uh, travesties of you know the Dublin scene that nothing came of that venue it was sold for 7 million and they never developed it oh. um, so uh, played in the new theatre I suppose I think you call that alternative <laughs> um, okay so, fair enough uh, so we went all over West Cork all over we were in yeah, different different parts of Ireland as well. Was and that would would that have then been like a you know no tech kind of 
you know, no mics, no lights. Um, it it had a plot, but it could it could manage without it. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. it definitely had a lighting plot, but it could manage without it. Yeah, that's great. Um, I've been referring to this series um, of interviews as my off-site project. Um, as a sort of a catch-all phrase yeah. that I think covers site-specific, site-responsive, and any work presented in a non-traditional theatre space. Um, do you think off-site is an appropriate term? And um, could you explain the difference between site-specific and site-responsive theatre? Right, then I think site-specific um, would certainly in, just encompass those uh, um, performances that really could not perform other than in the site, and that there is a sense that the performance um, is not necessarily drawing its content from the site, but it's very clearly conceived in relation to the site. Site responsive, I would have thought, is also linked in, 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 in a very important way in terms of content. Okay. That it's um, that the site is in effect a kind of text that they're working with. Right. Whereas with site specific you can bring in a concept that uses the space in very particular, in very specific ways. Mm. But you can you can prove me wrong on that. I'll find out. I works. Yeah, we look forward to hearing findings. Yeah. And do you think offsite works as a as a general term? Do you think most most uh, practitioners have an idea of what that entails when you say something like offsite? Yeah, I don't know what most practitioners do. I do think that there are extraordinary examples of practitioners who know how to work offsite mm-hmm. and uh, and find theatre that is more compelling than anything you might feel find in any in in kind of traditional or mainstream venue mm-hmm. by working offsite. Um, it's you know it's an extraordinary kind of energizing impulse to work offsite, which is because you're you're by definition decentering. You're moving into a space where you know, elitism or privilege doesn't apply. Um, and so you, you have a better chance of meeting a, a, an audience that is not attached to a certain tradition of theatre mm. um, and, and is not rewarded by that tradition in any way. So, yeah, the, the excitements that come from working in that decentralised way, and when it's done well, mm. It, out, it outpaces anything that you, you can see. Yeah. Um, through your work with uh, Druid Theatre Company, um, you've presented work in like large theatres and then uh, during the same tur- tour, you know, you've toured them to say community halls and constructed stages. And I'm sure that presents challenges to designers, but how does it influence your recommendations as a literary manager? Um, I don't think Druid recognised that a, a site should present a limitation. Okay. And I, I do remember when interviewing for the job uh, with Gary uh, during the second interview, you know, she was very clear that the production in essence is the same regardless where it performs, whether it's in the King's Head and, or King's Theatre in Edinburgh mm-hmm. or, you know, in the Gaiety or in, in the Abbey or in Town Hall Theatre in, in, in Galway. Or indeed, yeah. just community hall in, in the Iron Island somewhere. You know, it's it's the same experience that's that's that survives across each of those 
transpositions. And yes, like the, the design always will need to encompass something new to, to, to deal with the new set or to deal with the, the, the new venue, but, um, but there's no loss. From Gary's point of view, there would, there would be no loss. Some of the most exciting performances I've seen Druid give have been the offbeat, the off-center ones, the, 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 the performances in the, in the non-traditional spaces or with audiences that are not strictly uh, a mainstream audience. Yeah. Um, when you approach a new piece of work as a director or a dramaturg, do you make a conscious decision about where to stage the performance early on in the process? Or is that sort of something that's handed down to you? I think it helps if it's there. Yeah, I think it helps if it's, if it's there, if you know what that first venue is or what that first site is. I think mm. it's, it is considerable help, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look at um, the performance of Shakespeare's, the first Henry Ed cycle that we did, with Marco Rose uh, adaptation of it. Mark and I, there was a kind of, um, was a kind of, uh, not so much a conflict, but a, a definitely a source of tension between where Mark and I represent one point of view and Gary and our design team, which would include Francis and David, um, they represented another. And for some reason, we felt that uh, the Druid Theatre before the Shakespeare's than the Town Hall Theatre. That was a very big argument to make because mm. that was an enormous loss of, 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 um, of an audience in some ways. Sure. You, you, like you're going from a, what, 400 seats to 90 yeah. or 100. Um, so there was a significant loss of revenue. Now, we took up the argument at a very early point and uh, and stuck and stuck at it. <laughs> I think we won the argument. It, it, you know, I'm sure that Gary would see it differently, or the others might see it differently. But <laughs> I think the argument was well made. Mm. And and then again, when that went to West Cork, it performed in a venue even smaller. It went to Kilkenny. It was outdoors, and in New York, it was. The John Jay, which was conventional theatre, and so it and uh, and so it had to adapt to each venue on each occasion mm. significantly while retaining the idea, the essential idea, consistently, and the essential design ideas. So it was very helpful to that project for for us to know that it would start in, in Druid Lane and would always have to be um, proteans. Mm. Um, with regard to how it fit into venues and fit into does, does that give yeah. a, a sort of a nimbleness to a production then when when you know that you can perform it in a large space or a small space and it can be expanded or contracted as necessary um that you might lose a a, a large audience at the start but the longevity of the possibilities of uh of where you can tour it to could potentially create a, a much larger audience as a trade-off. Yeah, I think it's important to to narrow the aperture through which an audience can see the work, which is mm -hmm. to say you can generate an excitement around a piece of work by virtue of there being only small audiences who can, that can access it mm -hmm. in its initial iteration. 
And if, if that, if you move to venues that can encompass bigger audiences, all well and good. But that initial tightness is something that can really um, contribute to a, a, a sense of success, a sense of an event, a sense of excitement, yeah. a sense of um, for an audience that you know, a sense of of, of fortune in, in being in among those who actually get to see it. I think that would be true, for instance, of venues work. Yeah, the you know the numbers that can see it. There's always a sense of, of privileged absolutely that were, yeah, um, yeah yeah i felt that being among those who are part of that 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 experience and indeed that conversation um so that, those were kind of the arguments we were making mark and i on behalf of, of going into to theater and also just that you had more artistic control mm. so that you know the audience experience started in in that regard it crossed the street right and at every point that audience were in contact with, with, with the production all the way moving into the auditorium. They were part of, they were already part of the atmosphere. Yeah. That was very deliberately kind of worked, you know. So um, I think you do have more control offside. I think that's what our artists do enjoy. Mm. Um, do you have a favorite venue? Mm. I love going to the Young Vic. Right. I love the way it's reinterpreted consistently with every production. Uh, I've never worked there. But I, yeah, I, I, I spent a year in London just seeing theatre and I thought just going to the Yombic was the most exciting thing to do, always consistently. Yeah, it's like, like a treat. Work I was seeing there. Um, yeah, I really, I think in terms of my theatre taste or whatever, I, I think I got my teeth in the Yombic, you know. Mm. So some lovely, extraordinary work that I got to see there, yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're working as a dramaturg on a show being presented in an offsite space, do you feel the need to respond to the architecture of the space, or do you think a play can be presented independently of its surroundings? I think you might have kind of covered this oh, a bit. It's never independently of the surroundings. Yeah. Pardon? I think you might have covered this already in your previous answers, but you could go ahead. Yeah. It's never independent anyway. I, could, I certainly would. Reiterate that. I do remember in 2004 being privileged to have part of, be part of a workshop with Anne Bogart doing the, uh, you know, uh, the, the viewpoints. And just doing that made you aware, if I needed being made aware of the, the sheer value of the specifics of the space you were performing in uh, and its contribution to the atmospherics you're ultimately kind of generating for and around a piece, you know. Mm. Yes. Yeah, very important to inhabit a uh, space, even as a dramaturg. You know, people might think dramaturgs live in their head, but actually, they're out and abroad in the world as well, mm. really paying attention to the to the specifics and the detail. And the architecture they present, um, and the architecture. Yeah, architecture and dramaturgy are very close, very very close. I think in in sensibility. Mm. Sorry, I think we got caught in the the time delay there. Um, you work uh, in the Lear Academy as a tutor on the MFA program. Um, do you teach much offsite or site-specific work to your students? Very definitely, but um, it's not a specific topic. It's something that's in, like it's woven into it um, mm. at every point. Uh, it's very much encouraged to consider the ways in which the space has been used. Mm for each of the productions that we, we tend to be looking at. 
Yeah, one of the important plans of what I teach is actually is is students going out to see work um, over the span of the course. Now that's not available this year, so I've had yeah. the whole reconception of it. Uh, uh, but we've been having exciting, very extraordinary, and exciting experiences so far. We've been looking at um, very seminal productions of what does house of all things, you know, from Ostermeyer to Madelines to um, Bergman, no less, and um, a, a production of The Young Vic by Carrie Cracknell. And again, you can see an interpretation of space. You know, you see Jean Papelbaum working with Ostermeyer specifically for the shove on a space and the challenges that presents mm. concrete kind of deadness of that space that they have to, to inhabit and how he creates environments within that you know, just, just last, this last few weeks. Um, have any of your students expressed like an interest in making off-site work when they're finished their education? Oh, big time, yes. Yeah. Quite a few. I mean, one went on to do um, immediately after graduating, if not before she'd graduated. One director worked with a writer to create a piece in a, in a container, you know, like a, you know, those ship containers. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in, the, in the car park here in the Laird. Um, I think Sierra may have worked on that. Oh, yeah. As well. Yeah. It was a very strong piece. Mm. Like you were given the experience of being in a, an aircraft during a flight. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> you know, yeah, you were kind of moving between levels all the time, which is really exciting. So oh, very definitely. I mean, the, the students come under the influence of, of Louise Lowe anyway, mm. um, in their devising pieces as directors. So offsite would very definitely be something they're encouraged to do and, and they would develop an appetite for. And what sort of advice would you give um, to your students, like if, if they are considering um, working offsite? I think the worst thing I could do is give advice, to be honest. Okay. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. The, the, important, the important thing is that they develop their own voice. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're, they're very welcome to draw on what I can offer in terms of a dramaturgical response mm. once they're up and running. But yeah, they don't want to hear advice from me. Yeah. <laughs> but hands off is better. Um, so true, true festivals like uh, Dublin Fringe and Cork Midsummer and companies like Karkadurka and Anu, uh, many young Irish people who don't normally attend plays in traditional venues uh, come to see that work in, in other sites. Um, do you think that young Irish people have a strained relationship with traditional theatres, maybe due to like the history or the the perceived elitism? Theatre definitely has a problem with the perception of elitism, and I think tr traditional venues are not helping that. And um, yeah, um, and of course the price. I mean, it's a very big fault line and a big pardon. I said, and of course the price. Just being prohibitive for and the price people. is very off-putting as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it's a great thing that young people are getting the first experiences of theatre off-site, um, or indeed on their own turf, um, if it is in, in their own schools and so forth. Um, and I would be my controversial to say it, but I don't understand why these venues are getting the subvention they are, and why it isn't why the, that funding isn't just distributed more widely within the theatre community. I don't understand why the Abbey gets uh, a half of all 
uh, theater funding in this country. Uh, I don't see that it is it is making a contribution on that level to deserve that level of funding. Right. That is controversial. <laughs> um, I'm not okay. saying so. I'm not. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I absolutely take your point. It's not necessarily trickling down um, in a kind of fair way or an equitable way. Um, so, theatre companies sometimes present work in non-traditional spaces out of necessity uh, rather than by design. Um, would you ever advise a writer or a director? Uh, to like maybe wait until they could present a work in a more suitable space. I haven't done that. Uh, it's 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 just very treacherous to ask an artist to wait because uh, the opportunities are so few and far between. In any case, but the hunt for a suitable venue is something that needs to be part of the development mm. at all points. Yes, I think that was my next um, question. Right. As in, would you would you advise a writer or a director that their production would be better served in a different site, you know, early in the process? You you would you would certainly offer the the proposition. Yes. Right. You know, it's never a case as a drummer. You're not necessarily advising. You're just setting out a suite of options, really, mm -hmm. um, and, and 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 giving the space for the. The artist to make decisions around those. You know, you're just articulating what are the possibilities, what are the opportunities, what are the potentials, indeed, what are the obstacles. You're never invested in what the choice is that that is is taken, um, but you bring something into the into the conversation, and, and sight would have to be part of it for sure. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, you you would offer a view on what are the more appropriate sites, and you'd be very careful for um, in advising on certain sites where you find there are certain hazards attached to them. I, for instance, think that the Abbey main stage is, is a very difficult space to, um, to prepare work for. Uh, I think shows are probably 10% less well received in the Abbey than they'd be received anywhere else. Um, Sometimes that stage feels like it's on, it's another room over there, and it's very hard to make a connection with the audience. And I feel that sometimes nuance gets lost on it. Mm. So um, sometimes you would advise a writer maybe to aspire to the Peacock rather than the Abbey, or mm. or, or you know a studio venue rather than a a proceeding march venue, for sure. And I think some writers have. Being disadvantaged by being presented on the Abbey too soon on mm. the main stage. Um, if a writer makes clear through either stage directions or maybe notes on their text that uh, their play is to be performed in a certain type of space or in a certain way, does the company presenting the work have an ethical obligation to follow that direction? I mean, I, I would incline to believe that the stage directions are not a, a, a blueprint to follow. Mm. Um, and in my own direction, I often will, I will type out the script, leaving out the stage directions and let the company mm. contend with a script solely of dialogue yeah. and uh, discover it for themselves. So I, I have a very kind of, at the same time, I think it's helpful to know what 
what what, what intentions are um, are underpinning or under underscoring the, the stage directions to know them, but I I, I don't believe that we're obliged to fulfill them. But then again, in every rule is something that's waiting there to be broken. In theater. <laughs> yeah. I think that's important to acknowledge. <laughs> uh, so I often think of um, the theater making process in the order of writing coming before staging. Um, but of course, sometimes work is made as a response to a site, um, such as, for example, Forced Entertainment's Night, uh, Nights in the City. Um, do you have any experience of working in this way? Um, I can't recall my own working on that in that way, but I do recall um, playgroup Tom, Tom Creed's company, you know, taking over the Everyman, calling it Dark Week. It's a great title. Yeah, yeah. And, and then also doing a piece on the, uh, on the, yeah. And it was a great, it was a really brilliant show, really opened my eyes to, to the Everyman. And I thought it was such an excitement to see audiences on stage into mixing with the performers as the performers were doing their thing. Just love the, I just love the texture of that. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen a piece of um, site-specific theatre that you thought would have actually been better suited to traditional venue? Um, that may be true, but I don't know if I ever had that thought. Um, there's, there have been works of site-specific theatre that I haven't entirely uh, enjoyed, I suppose, to say. Mm. I've been convinced by, but uh, I would never necessarily recommend that a, a, a piece go from a site specific to the, main, to the mainstream. I might very often recommend the opposite. <laughs> to yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, um, if, a, if a production offsite doesn't work, I wouldn't necessarily find that the fault is the fact that it's not in a theater. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, as we've uh, made our way through this uh, pandemic period, uh, many companies have stopped work, but also many of them have continued either online or outdoors with strict social distancing. Um, have you attended any of these shows? Yes, I have. I've, um, I've also been watching a lot of work at streaming live, um, but I did go to see the very first performance Druid Frederick and uh, what they found a very uh, solution to performing uh, these circumstances. So, you know, the audience was split into two and then came together outdoors at all times. And uh, you felt you, like the movement was very. Um, very intentional, and that you know you, you felt that there was connection between each of the various points you were you, you were looking at. Uh, I've seen the work here in the Lair, um, the students' work, and it's, the work's been a very high standard. Um, and for all that they are not allowed to make contact um, or even to share props, the actors are coming up with extraordinary, like good solutions for the productions, not simply substitutes. Mm. For the uh, for the conditions, you know, um, the live streaming work has been really interesting. I think there is another hybrid form 
emerging, which is work that is created for a, a live stream audience. Mm. Um, I saw the production of Crave Chichester Festival, uh, and that was uh, performed without any audience in the auditorium. And the standard production was really high, and uh, it was a very brilliant, persuasive production of a very challenging play. Mm. And yes, I've been seeing other work as well that I think has held up really well. And the other side of it is the, all these companies are now streaming archival work, and it's been an absolute boon for getting to grips with the, you know, the back catalogue of companies you know, holding in very high esteem, not least of which is you know, the Shabuna. Some of the work mm. we've seen from Shabuna in stream been amazing. Nadu Iman is the same. You know, really extraordinary kind of Mr. Group. They're, you know, they're showing extraordinary work mm. national, uh, so that you're never at a loss. So, is that down to? Uh, I mean, is so, so going back to like say the the online streaming, for example. Um, do you think that that sort of work will continue in the future, or is it is it sort of diverging? To a path that might not necessarily have happened if there hadn't been a pandemic. Yeah, it's hard to say. Is it, is it um, in some ways consolidating a development that was already there? I mean, I have always enjoyed latter years attending live theatre that is streamed into cinemas, and it has mm. actually saved me from having to go to London. <laughs> to see a lot of the work that I've been doing. And indeed into Europe. Um, and when you, you tune into a performance that's being streamed, you're, the Chichester Festival was able to excite audiences all over, you know, from the West Indies, to, you know, to New Zealand, to Australia, to, the, to Hong Kong, to, you know, to all parts. And that's an audience you would never have had access to prior to this, never have thought to do that. So I, I can't see companies stepping back from that. Mm. Um, and I suspect companies are going to start to develop work with that live stream audience in mind. I think that, that, that was my next question. Do you think the, the format then will um, influence the, the productions themselves in terms of, I think we could, we're, it's already starting to happen, say with like companies like Dead Center, um yeah. you know i suppose they they like I, sorry go ahead two things are happening one is that people have had a, had a bit of a time out so they've actually been able to take on a much more long view that kind of thinking and to actually really develop ideas and not only the ideas but also to develop the structures until those ideas can take place so i think infrastructure is improving by virtue of really having the break um, and so I said in the near future, the, the quality of the ideas, the quality of the theater that gets made will be, will be better. And, and those ideas will very definitely encompass technology that, that, that allows for live streaming. Yeah. And these are going to be part of that, part of the ideas are going to be part of the, the integrity of the work. Um. Now, is there a point where theatre kind of becomes indistinguishable from film? Like, is it useful to make a distinction even? Yeah. Oh, 
absolutely so. And I think even when it performs for a live streamed audience, without an audience in the auditorium, it'll always still be distinctly theatre. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, with the lockdown and the increase in Arts Council funding, um, do you think there's going to be an increase in, in new work uh, next year, like new scripts? Um, or do you think the same amount will be there, but just maybe you've already said you'd think the quality will be better? I think the, the number of proposals will increase for sure. It's just a question of like, how do we manage a situation where there's already a backlog and there's so much more new work trying to kind of put, put its way in as well. Does that mean there's going to be more theatrical activity or is it simply that there are going to be harder choices? Mm. Um, who are going to make those choices? It's simply down to producers, festivals, um, venues. Pat Kiernan recently um, was talking about starting Kirkadurka as a response to like not having access to venues for like financial reasons. Um, and do, do you think that there could then be a, a similar problem here where because of the amount of shows that need to be put on, the lack of venues, the lack of funding, um, or you know, that, that theatre makers could go, well, look, we'll just put it on ourselves. We'll, we'll find one of uh, a space and put it on. Yeah. I think it's not a lack of venues that's the problem. Um, I think it's how the funding is being distributed. Mm-hmm. I think it's about the priorities that are attaching to, those, to the funding. And I would very clearly be on the side of, of that funding being made available to um, to the emerging artist, no, in all fairness, I don't understand why the level of funding should, should go to the gate, should go to the abbey, should go to the established work, even to companies like Druid, to the extent that it does. And I don't trust those venues to be um, places which will develop the, the emerging artist. Um, I think artists will find spaces in which to do their work. It's not an issue. It's other kinds of supports that they need. Um, David McWilliams uh, wrote in the Irish Times last month that Ireland is facing a golden opportunity for its economy. Um, and he was kind of talking about the forthcoming vaccines and the historical precedent of the roaring 20s. Um, we've already had like a, a massive increase in funding from the Arts Council this year. Do you think that were there to be, as opposed to a, um, like, personally, I think it might be more a case of there's going to be an unprecedented recession, but um, if there was a resurgence, do you think that would translate into better funding opportunities? Or do you think it's a case now where this was an emergency situation, so we gave you emergency money and, you know, once everything's back to normal? the funding levels will again go back to normal. But a few things about what you're saying. There's no going back to normal, I suspect. So we don't really know what the future holds, but it's not what it was. It's something we can be sure of. 
Um, the second thing, the only thing that the increased funding will, will lead to is a kind of a heightening of the power struggle. And I think yeah. there is a real fault line between the emerging artists and in this country. Um, and, it and the established, you know, venues and so forth have had it their own way for such a long time. It is an astonishing anomaly that in Ireland, the funding is linked to your longevity. Abbey is the longest there, it has the most funding. You know, Gate is next, it has the next most funding. Food is next, and they have the next funding. The open theatre festivals, so on and so forth. And they're not to be trusted to develop the artists that are coming through. They have a very narrow agenda. Um, and I think theatre as an art form would be served not by those venues, but by the artists who are coming through. Um, and they have to be helped to get access to the resources. And so it's not, funding by itself will not lead to better theatre. Funding by itself may indeed lead to abuses. And then maybe there are ways in which companies are abusing the fact that this funding is so-called emergency funding, keeping them, you know, on so-called life support, but, um, but that funding is not actually getting through to to us or to you know the um freelance theater worker as such as as you guys know and could there be like we've seen a rise um of sort of subscription models and uh you know crowdfunding um could this rise in sort of online streaming lead to a completely new funding model where artists are able to bypass you know, say state aid and just go, I'm making a piece of theatre. I want you all to contribute, um, you know, fans of my work. I want you all to put in a tenor uh, to develop it before you even see the, uh, the finished product. Could well be the case. Um, it's equivalent to self-publishing and, mm. uh, and, you know, there are those publishing were able to make quite a sturdy career and quite a lot of money from that. Mm. Um, and I expect theatre artists will take that initiative for sure. Um, at the same time, theatre does benefit from the imprimatur of, let's say, a festival sure. or, or a venue, but that may not hold from this point onwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how, 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 how things play out. It could well be that this impulse towards democratization really transforms the landscape. And, you know, it could well be that people are creating theater in their apartments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, control what's in the space of the screen and it doesn't necessarily require a huge amount of money to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll finish with this question, but there, you know, there's also a uh, an idea that a lot of people are going to be working from home. There's going to be a, a movement out of cities and um, out to say the countryside or something like that. Do you think like these sort of demographic changes um, will play a big part in the type of uh, theatre that gets made and where it is made? Do you think, for example, you know, can could artists move into these empty office spaces and start, you know, uh, using them as studios, or um, is there potential there, maybe? I don't see that happening. I don't see, like, this idea that there's a, like a flight from, from the city, which leaves vacant spaces that artists, artists will occupy. I, I think artists will be part of that flight in the first instance. Yeah, yeah. But the, 
the other side of it is that um, it's very likely that big venues will not generate the kinds of audience numbers that they've been used to and require for their economic models. Mm. Um, it's very, it's going, be, it's going to take a long time for audiences to be reassured. Uh, um, to gather in the numbers that they, you know, would have taken for granted prior, prior to this. It took a very long time for that to happen. I can't see audiences going back to dock now, dock the numbers they used to go there. So, um, so the economics of theatre will, will certainly change. And this emergency funding is just possibly delaying the inevitable. Mm. And you may well be right about this, that we're facing into session somewhere down the line very likely but again it's so hard to call the future that i think the future is really going to be for those who are able to adapt and to 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 identify the opportunities best and so i think you know this adaption is like a a particular skill of theater makers i mean i've seen it with uh, druid and anu um you know just working out every little angle and the layer as well you know all these ingenious ways in which you can adapt and survive um although maybe theater is kind of really well placed to find the sort of the early shoots of uh of the possibilities there um thomas thanks a million for uh for doing the interview it's been really like good to talk to you this is the um, the first of the series, so um, we've definitely had a. Uh, I've learned a, a bit about uh, <laughs> the hardware side of it, uh, but also I think um, I've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this. And uh, thank you very much. Good luck with the series, Owen, and I look forward to hearing your findings from it once you you've gone through all your interviews. So, thanks to Thomas for chatting to me, and thanks as well to the Arts Council for supporting this project, and to astronaut Mike Dexter for composing the music. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Pete Jordan.